Thanks for joining us on the American Masters Podcast, where we pull never-before-heard interviews off the shelf and onto the airwaves. I'm your host, Michael Cantor, executive producer of the long-running PBS documentary series, American Masters. On this episode, we've uncovered a 1996 interview with Lena Horne, the legendary singer, dancer, actress, and civil rights activist. Originally recorded for American Masters' Lena Horne in her own voice, in this podcast, Horne recalls the milieu of racial and gender prejudice that she faced in the 1940s and 50s as a woman of color. She shares stories about her then-controversial interracial marriage to musician Lenny Hayton, her Hollywood blacklisting, and meeting Medgar Evers in the days before his tragic death. It's a candid and moving first-person account from a true pioneer in the entertainment industry who blazed a trail so that, as she put it, I no longer have to be an imitation of a white woman that Hollywood sort of hoped I'd become. Here's Lena Horne talking to interviewer Yvonne Smith, beginning with the story of getting her first call from Hollywood. I got a call from California. They called and said, come out and do a show with Ethel Waters, Duke Ellington, Catherine Dunham, and you, incidentally, <laughs> at this uh, big cafe, Macombo, in uh, California. And I said no. Uh, I grieved and said, oh, and what am I going to do in California? And I may be able to get my children with me now, and I want to move to Brooklyn and have the house there for them, the house I was born in and be with my family. And I've got this nice job at Cafe Society. Well, I was torn between all those people. And they finally talked me into it, and we flew out to California. I had both children with me at that time. And I got to California, and for eight or nine months, had no work because they paid the rent for me. And the war scares had come along. And California seemed to be very kind of nervous about it because they're right there on the Pacific. Uh, you couldn't get materials, building materials, because they were, I guess, knew that in the future they'd have to get materials for war. And they couldn't make the stage big enough and the, make the alterations they wanted. I mean, everything happened to make this a bad time for me in California. We couldn't open at this big cabaret. Ethel Waters had other dates to go to. Duke Ellington had dates. Catherine Dunham opened, and I was on the bill with her in a little place called a little truck. And the, it was so small that her, the skirts of her dancers would get in people's soup and plates around the ringside. And I was safe because I didn't need a microphone. I just stood in the, on the corner of the stage and did what I had to do. And... Uh, that's where some people from MGM saw me working. Roger Edens saw you there. Roger Edens saw me working in, at the little truck, and uh, they took me out to MGM. And they had never heard of me or anything, but Roger told them to bring me out there. And I didn't, thinking nothing about it. And I sang for him, and he had some people in the office with him, and then he took me to Arthur Freed. And uh, they said, they want to hire you. And I, you know, for what? And they said, oh, we like the way you sing, and we have this fine director named Vincent Minnelli. We want him to do a, 
a piece of property he has called Cabin in the Sky. So I went home and called my father and told him what had happened. And he said, are you sure they're not going to put you in a Tarzan picture? And I said, I don't think so. But I mean, I don't want to be in the movies because all the movies I'd seen didn't make me that happy. And I was happier at Cafe Society. So my father came, flew out to California, and went the next day with me to Mr. Mayer. And my father gave him the drawings, you know. Said, well, you know, uh, we're not really happy about black people in the movies. I don't want it to be in the movies. So by the time he got through telling Mr. Mayer how happy my father himself, he could make me. <laughs> but they took me. So, uh, and didn't know what to do with me then because I, I didn't have anything about Tarzan, anything against Tarzan pictures or being working for people in the movies or maids and all, but we had never seen anybody like a person be in the movies, you know? Uh, so I thought it was very funny when I think about it, but I guess it wasn't. Your screen test at MGM, they, had, they actually had burnt cork that they put on you. Could you tell me about that? While I was at MGM in the beginning, they really didn't know what to do with me, and they didn't know what to make of me. Since they had heard I didn't want to be any other race except my own, they uh, began to test me for working with other black people in the films, and they, they began to try to get a makeup to make me more colored-looking. They didn't know that I did, they didn't let themselves know that black people are all shades of the rainbow, you know. So they started putting makeup that they called Negro. They didn't say black people then, but colored or African. And uh, I began to disappear. The nose didn't stand out and the lips were not there. And I don't know, it was just the wrong color for me. And so they tried other things and other colors. So they finally said, we, they had signed me to a seven-year contract, and they said, this seven years, we got to find something to do with this girl. They must have said that. And so, Jack Dawn, you've got to invent a makeup for her. And they tested all kinds of shades on me, and they finally made one that he called Light Egyptian. And that was the makeup that I wore whenever I was in one of their movies. But meanwhile, Hedy Lamar wore it to be Tondalea in the movie, and uh, other people who were playing native people and all started wearing light Egyptian. And uh, it was pretty silly. But I didn't know enough to get on my uppers and say, look, we're all colors, take it or leave it. Before you actually did your first movie, mm -hmm. you had a whole lot of trepidation mm -hmm. about actually doing this Hollywood thing. Mm -hmm. When I was being looked over and looked at and decided upon to do in the movies. I always ached for New York and went and took my pride in my hand and asked to have the Christmas week off, the first Christmas out there at MGM. And the night that I came in, it was two days before New Year's, I came back and went to Birdland. I knew I would find whoever was playing there, plus Basie, plus Billy Eckstein, plus any band leader or anybody else, because we all in those years went there. And I had on a, my first mink coat that I was paying down on. 
And I went downstairs into the club, and there they all saw me and yelled, and I went over to the bar. I b began on my first of the many champagnes I had that night. And by the time we left there, I was high, and we went walking down the middle of Broadway. It was cold, and uh, the coats were flying in the breeze, you know, mink and everything, and I'm crying. I don't want to go back there. I'm unhappy, I'm miserable. Why can't I be here with you? And that's when Basie, we stopped in the middle of the street, and he said, you have to go back. He said, there's no one out there yet like you. We want to be in the movies too. You have to go back because you've got to make it possible for others of us to go out there. He was very old fashioned about the whole thing, but he's brought to life in me this kind of spark. It wasn't always happy, but it was that I must be representative of people. And I'm so glad that is over now, but he made me realize that it didn't matter, that I didn't like it and I wasn't happy but I had been given the job, so I had to do it. And I better be good in it, because we always have to be representative. And uh, that's a hard road to hoe, you know. Uh, but he made me go back. I got on the train the next night. While I was there in Hollywood, I, the one uncomfortable thing I had among a few was uh, the attitude of the black actors while I was there. I don't know why it was such a big thing that they had signed me for seven years, but that meant every time I did something wrong, they'd put me on. But there was a whole group of them, sort of like a, a unit of people who'd worked on all the Tarzan pictures, had worked with the stars, had been, you know, in the picture. And there were those of my people who felt that I might have made it impossible for them to make more pictures like that or for them to be chosen to work. And that was a very un uh, unnerving to me at first because I had gone out there and stayed out there for the NAACP and the Urban League and this, that, and the other organization. And now they were keeping me from friends I might have made. Uh, well, how did the situation resolve itself? Did the actors finally just keep getting this? When they saw that I wasn't doing no bigger parts than they were and uh, that it was not a great thing, the actors finally got easy because I was always with my own people when Billy would take me and I'd be there and I made friends who understood and uh, I saw that my situation was just another little piece of the whole picture. I was gonna be just like my father thought. They're gonna give you this one part and you, that's it. And he was telling the truth, that's what happened. And they weren't any better off either. Could you tell me about the motion picture code that basically was the, the rationale that they used for not giving you parts? In, in MGM, they used the fact that uh, certain of their southern exhibitors and theaters were prejudiced, so that that was why I always had to just play a singer in, in the scene, but not of the picture. I know some of that was true because uh, I knew that from reading the army papers of people I know in, in the camps at Huachuca and Fort Lee that I went around to. Uh, I had started doing USO shows, not with USO proper, but me going around. Uh, I had wound up in uh, outside of Little Rock, Arkansas, and I had been ticked off quite a lot going from camp to camp because 
They either kept me with black officers and the white guys who were not even in the same rank of these guys were allowed to take me around and I'd have to go in the white officers' building to entertain. So I had put my foot down and said no. I will sing in kitchens, supply rooms, any place, but I'm not going in the kitchen and eat with you all when the black guys aren't allowed to, you know. I had done a show the night before to all the white people on the place and white workers, and uh, I was going to get to sing for black soldiers this next night, and there they were in the back of the auditorium, and then the white soldiers and then mingled in with them on one side. German prisoners of war uh, and uh, other white prisoners. And I just got choked. And I went to the back where they were sitting and sang with my back to all the other people. And that wasn't very pleasant. They said, get her off these tours. Uh, you know, she causes trouble. And I said, we're getting out of here. Come on, let me pick up my bags where they are and get us in the car and go to the nearest NAACP office or hall or church, wherever they are. Anyway, they, they threw me out of the USO, so I took my own money and went whenever I could get space on a train. What was Hollywood making you? Who, who were you to them? Somebody who sang a couple of those songs well, did it pretty good. But they really didn't know what else to do with me. I couldn't tap dance. And in those kind of pictures, they'd had to have, a, I guess, a black romantic lead or somebody to be with me in a scene in the picture. I was never in a story. There were never, uh, in these white movies I was in, I don't know what the stories were. Basically, in order to save your professional life, because you were going nowhere fast in the movies. You renegotiated your contract. Mm -hmm. Could you? Well, while I was in the movies at my lowest peak, I think, uh, I had been put on suspension by the studio. That means no salary. And I uh, was punished because I didn't do a property of theirs that I didn't want to be in. And uh, Joan Crawford called me, and she came in, and she said, I heard about the trouble you're having with MGM. She said, you know, I've been through my troubles off and on at a couple of these studios. She said, you have to not show that you have any pride at all. She said, you have to go to Mr. Mayor and tell him you have been remiss, you have been wrong, you've been punished, and you're a nice girl who owes them everything. Uh, and to try to play the whole thing as a sob scene to Mr. Mayor, and you'll do that all the time. And it took a couple of weeks, but meanwhile, she said, go to MCA. They will settle the business with MGM, and we will become your managers, which is what I did. I was paying them off for about 10 years, but they bought out my contract. And anyway, I was put back on payroll, and I was sent to work in a lot of cabarets that they owned. That's how I got off suspension. I mean, cabarets really were your bread and butter. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is when, basically, you went out on the road a lot mm -hmm. with Lenny. Now, 
How important was Lenny Hayden to the polishing of your house? Well, when we finally got married, see, we were married three years before and we announced it. He began to work with me musically, and he, he made wonderful arrangements for me. And they tended to stretch me vocally, and I was learning from that. Did the marriage raise any hackles among the black community? Oh, of course. My members of my family didn't speak to me for three years, and uh, they finally, uh, I was finally let out. But so were a lot of people at that time of MGM, and my husband, eventually. And uh, Tex McCrary, who's an old friend of mine, who used to have a famous talk show with he and his wife, he got letters, of course, from white people, but white people didn't know that much about me as my own people did, so that the crux of the problems came from them. It sounds so silly uh, to say it now, but I find that there's still parts of that going on in the country. But uh, they, he said that the mail has been enormous and they're all against it. So we had to weather it out. And uh, I went back abroad and worked and finally got put back on the TV here. In your interview with Ed Bradley, yes. you had told him, and you've said this at other times too, that initially, it wasn't so much love that brought you together. That's right. I married Lenny, I guess for selfish reasons. I liked him very much, and I think he liked me. But I had, I said this once to Nina Simone, whom I liked very much, and she said, hallelujah, she patted her foot. We didn't have a black man like Barry Gordy at that time, and we didn't have any black entrepreneurs like Cosby and all this. We didn't have anybody to fight this battle for me. And uh, I knew that a white man could get me into places that black men couldn't. I knew that would happen because he was white. They didn't have to know whether I was married to him or anything. So rather cold-bloodedly, I had that in the back of my mind. And I was terribly surprised that he was going to marry me, not because uh, of anything he did or said, but my aunt, my cousins in Chicago, had told me it's terrible to marry a white man because they'll go to bed with you, but they never marry you. Now, that's from another age just before me. That's coming from her. And the reputation of that was like, yes, they, they'll go to bed with you, but they don't marry you. It was a challenge to me, but main reason why was because I knew he had the entree that I couldn't have with a black man of workplaces. But you know, I learned to love him completely because he took all this from me and went along with the flow and made me at times to forget he was white. I don't know why I didn't sit down and tell him the history of jazz. I should have sat down and told him about many of the things that made me angry because he didn't understand what my anger was. And he'd say, Oh, she's just like that. You know, don't pay attention to her. Part of the anger was my not having anybody but my closest friends to say all this to because I didn't want to, when I found out he was such a decent guy, I didn't really want to tell him what I felt. And I learned to love him and I traveled all over with him. He and I worked as a great unit. And uh, we made a good marriage for 20 some odd years. Uh, and part of that was because in the 60s, he realized what I felt. And a lot of people learned some few things during the 60s. 
The 60s were sort of watershed period because it brought kind of new understanding with my husband and made me feel close to my grandmother for the first time. I came to life because I knew I had a right to be in the 60s. I had a right to be absorbed in it because my family, my grandmother and my grandfather and my great-grandfather had been fighters all the time. The Indian side was fighting to get a piece of ground to sit on and the black people in my family. I just didn't feel I could be family. You really had to, you didn't have to, but you did draw sides. You did go to the side that you wanted to be with the one that I most admired, the people who were, who were decent. We were going through some rather bad times there, and yet I knew that my, one of my grandparents had had trouble being welcomed in a restaurant and ha having a place and not having his stuff bombed out or burned out. I had a right to be involved in the 60s. I just knew I had to be with brave people. You and Billy Strayhorn did this little light of mine for the NACP rally. Could you, do you remember that? I wanted to go south very badly, and uh, part of that was also fueled by a James Baldwin piece that ran in the New York magazine, New Yorker, The Fire Next Time, but that was the title. And I read that in one, I had all the copies that was given me through text. I read it all in the two days it took to cross country coming back from uh, California. And there was a couple on the train that knew me, white people. And I came out that second day, and I was still shaking. And uh, she said to me, what's the matter with you? I said, I'd, I've just read James Baldwin's pieces in The New Yorker. I have got to be around people like this, who are people whom I want to be with, because I feel so close to him. And that it, the, the piece just destroyed me. And James Baldwin came to New York, and I was with him at a very important meeting we had with uh, Robert Kennedy and some other people. And uh, I began to feel myself again, because I wasn't singing or dancing or entertaining, but uh, I had the right to, to be with them as a black woman, not as Lena Horne. But I guess Lena Horne was rather valuable to some in some instances. The name was valuable, and I had... Through the name, I could get to certain people and certain places. So on the other hand, I guess MGM helped a bit. <laughs> well, do you remember that night with Medgar Evers? I remember, yes. I went down there with Billy Strahan to play piano for me, and I was going to work for the Southern leadership. And I went on down to Medgar's home, Mississippi, to see him, to appear at a church, to meet people. and. I came a day earlier, and I was driven around the town, and that's when he said to me, he said, I love my country here. He said, I'm from Mississippi. I love it. It could be a wonderful place. That was the first kind of black man like that I had had the pleasure of getting to because I had either been with entertainers, musicians, husband, or acquaintances and all the people that are always in a group. And I went there, and he was a wonderful man, strong, physical, aggressive, nice, sweet family, and working with people who were trying to get voter permission for black people. And 
He said to me that day, he said, would you mind living at so-and-so's house? Because they bombed my place the other day, and we haven't finished fixing it up. And I said, hmm. And I went to the church that night with Bill and was not prepared for it, but felt it, that church full of people who were in the thick of trying to be real. And they, they put up with what I did. I mean, it wasn't anything they were used to hearing, but I did it, and I sang this little light of mine. That's the one thing they could hear that I had maybe been around some of my own people. And then I got back to New York, and the next morning I was going to go on NBC to do a show with uh, Chet Huntley. And we were just, I was waiting in the makeup room or somewhere to go on. He came in the room and he said, we're going to be a little late starting because they've just killed Medgar Evers. And I said, you know, went off. What? And I, then it just came out. And, and they find, when they put me on the air that morning, I was black and proud of it. I mean, really. Honestly, that pride, that was where my grandmothers came from. And we were all angry. But, you know, it wasn't a surprise. It's never a surprise when you know what is going down. You cannot be unaware. He was quite a man. Well, Malcolm X, mm. how did you feel about him? Well, I met him a long time ago, just before he became Malcolm X. I read his book, also going on the train to visit the great white woman who was senator. Anyhow, I read that in t the two days it took us. And that was the other book I read that just dissolved every thought of being adulpated and believing anything that anybody said to me. That book was, was a head opener, really, for me. So you, be, you, did, you then became pretty much involved with the National Council of Negro I did. They, uh, the, I became involved with the National Council of Negro Women after, at that time. And I had never wanted to be in a club or be a joiner or this, that, and the other, because they had always said to me many times when I was fighting in cabarets for my musicians or something, they'd say, come on, be with us. Why are you like this? Why are you angry? And I had known only certain types of people. I didn't know the wonderful women who had, who were lawyers, doctors, owners of hairdressing salons. I didn't know so many wonderful black women. And I had been so hungry for that kind of knowledge for so long. And I went south with them. I found myself down there, people who knew me when I was a little girl, and when I'd been one place or another, and even ran into one of the girls I had lived with in Macon, Georgia. And my whole life, I'd, I'd meet these people whose homes I'd stayed in or who'd seen me on the, near the houses where I used to live. And it, that opened me more. I began to respect even the cafes that I worked in and uh, all that because it was just getting me together so I was useful to some other people. Uh, it's hard to explain what I felt. And it was an experience I, I can't describe. It was wonderful and gave me so much more respect. Because you, when you feel you're by yourself, you get uh, into that little selfish rut where you think, well, me, 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 me. And you go out and you find somebody as bad off as you are, but, but moving onward with it and being brighter and smarter than you are, you just have to admire that. Well, that's um, 
and we're almost at the end now, but I just want to take mm -hmm. you into what you did with this new energy, with this new Lena. Well, for, Lena. yeah, it, it took me into touring with the, for fundraising for them, took me into working more and more to my own people, turning me to the edge I should have on certain songs because it was about them and me honing that craft again, you know? My identity is is very clear to me now. I'm a black woman. I'm not alone. I'm free. I say I'm free because I no longer have to be a credit. I don't have to be a, a symbol to anybody. I don't have to be a first to anybody. I don't have to be an imitation of a white woman that Hollywood sort of hoped I'd become. I'm me, and I'm like nobody else. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher for future episodes. And visit the American Masters website at pbs.org slash American Masters for digital archive gems, past episodes, and more. You can also find American Masters on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, and YouTube. We'll be back in two weeks for our next episode of the American Masters podcast. Thank you.